And the next case is the advisory opinion related to the prohibition on the possession of defined assault weapons. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> we are here to discuss the Attorney General's request for an advisory opinion regarding the initiative petition prohibits possession of defined assault weapons. My name is James Percival, and I'll be presenting argument for the Attorney General. George Levesque will be presenting argument for the National Rifle Association, and Amber Nunnally will be presenting argument for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. I'd like to save three minutes for rebuttal. The ballot summary is clearly and conclusively deficient for two reasons. One, it mischaracterizes the exemption for semi-automatic long guns currently possessed. And two, both by virtue of what it says and what it does not say, it fails to disclose the sweeping nature of the ban on semi-automatic long guns. I want to start with the first point, uh, and I have two particular points I want to focus on in discussing the exemption. So one is that the text is materially misleading or inconsistent, excuse me. And two, I want to walk through some of the proponents' counterarguments and explain why each of them fail. So first, on the inconsistency of the text. The summary states, quote, exempts and requires registration of assault weapons lawfully possessed. In other words, it is framed as an exemption that runs to the assault weapon. The amendment's text is very clear, however, and, and I don't think this is disputed by any of the parties, that that exemption is in fact limited to the person's possession of that assault weapon. Now at first blush, this may seem like an insignificant difference, but when you start to unpack it, you see that the differences are very significant. So there are some basic practical differences like your ability to sell the weapon, transfer the weapon, uh, you know, devise it in your will. Uh, there are differences uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, like a person's ability to go, say, take their child to the gun range and use the gun to teach them to shoot. The child's uh, possession would be prohibited. But I think the most important effect, and the effect that I want to talk about, is the long-term effect. Because the way this is framed in the ballot summary is as a grandfather provision. What it basically says to voters is we're going to prohibit new sales, but the guns that are in Florida now are not going to be prohibited. But what's actually going on here is very different. This is a sunset provision. What this does is it builds in an expiration on every firearm in Florida. Now the expiration time will be different, or excuse me, every covered firearm in Florida. Uh, now the expiration will be different for every firearm. If an older person owns the firearm, maybe it'll be when they pass away. Maybe somebody will want to sell it. But there's a very big difference between grandfathering in firearms and sunsetting them. Uh, this says it does the first thing, but it actually does the second thing. Um, so now I want to address some of the proponents' counterarguments. I think they fall into two broad categories. The first category is their arguments that the ballot summary, in their view, is actually not inconsistent. Uh, and their, their second category of arguments, which I take to mean that 
that they think the court should overlook the inconsistency, even if it exists. So first, on the arguments regarding whether the two are consistent, I think they're really different versions of context arguments and purpose arguments. On context, I think context actually favors significantly our reading here, and the reason for that is if you look at the immediately preceding sentence in the ballot summary, it refers to an exemption for law enforcement and military personnel in their official duties. So what you have here is back-to-back -back exemptions that can be juxtaposed by the voter just like any ordinary reader. The first one, very expressly, runs to the user. The second one, very expressly, runs to the weapon. So when you add context, we think the sentence has a plain meaning and that that should end the inquiry. But when you bring context into the fold, context makes it even more clear that the first exemption runs to the user and the second exemption runs uh, to the item. The second argument they make I think are different versions of a purpose argument. Now our position would be that purpose cannot overcome plain text and that the court should stop there. But I think there's a second really important consideration regarding purpose that is specific to this regime. So what their argument is asking is for voters to develop an understanding of the purpose and use that purpose to ignore the plain text. But what they don't explain is where are voters going to learn what the purpose is. And what the Florida legislature has stated is that it is the ballot summary itself that tells voter what the purpose is. So there's, a, there's two levels uh, that are problematic about their argument. The first is voters relying on a purpose, but the second is the voters looking outside the very document that the legislature has said provides the purpose uh, and, and basically developing it based on their own understanding. Um, so unless the court has further questions, with our argument about the exemption, I'd like to turn to our second argument. Um, and that second argument is that voters are unlikely to understand uh, the breadth of the ban in this case. Uh, and, and we've laid out in our brief why we think this is a virtual ban. And there are really three considerations together that we think make voters unlikely to understand this. So the first is the broad meaning of the phrase capable of, and not just the meaning of that phrase by itself, but in this particular context. The second is the term assault weapons, which we recognize is defined uh, in the ballot summary itself, but we think that term has a particular connotation, and when coupled with uh, the phrase capable of, we think makes it even less likely that voters will, under voters will understand the nature of the ban. And then three, we've talked about a lot of the aftermarket accessories that render a firearm capable of holding more than 10 rounds, and that's something that we don't think is common knowledge to voters. Can so, I, sorry to interrupt you. Can I ask you a question? So I know there's a lot of dispute back and forth about the breadth, but to the extent that the voter knows from the summary kind of what the operative words would be in terms of capable of and to the extent that they're, you know, that's debatable how that would apply to the firearms that are out there in the market, um, how how in this context with this, you know, advisory opinion setting and we've got competing affidavits from experts, I mean, how are we, how are we supposed to decide? Uh, I mean, we can interpret the words, you know, capable of, but in terms of what effect that would have in terms of what's out there available to people and, and extrapolating from that to the breadth of it, I mean, how are we supposed to resolve disputes like that in the context of this proceeding? So I think, if I understand Your Honor's question right, I think you're asking maybe two questions. One is how do you resolve the factual disputes? And two, is the ambiguity reflected in both places and maybe that means it's not problematic? Uh, on the first point, I think the factual disputes, and I can explain why, I think they are much more superficial than they appear. I don't think the court needs to resolve any significant factual disputes. If you really start to unpack them, I think what you discover is 
The real dispute is over the legal interpretation of the phrase capable of. So our expert says we have these magazine extenders that will increase the capacity of basically all fixed magazine semi-automatic shotguns. And their expert came back and said, oh, I don't think capable of means that, and here are some other things you should know about magazine extenders. But I don't think anybody disputes that the magazine extenders exist and they have this basic effect. I think it's a, it's a pure legal question uh, whether the phrase capable of embraces those sorts of aftermarket accessories. And we think that it does. I mean, one of the things that our expert explained is that these things can be attached to the gun uh, in a very short amount of time. It doesn't require any expertise. They can be purchased through the mail. And so we think the word capable of in this context embraces uh, those sorts of changes. I think if I understood your second question, and if you weren't asking this, I think I'll address it anyway. Um, which is that perhaps there's an ambiguity in both places and that, that, that in that case the ballot summary is not problematic. Uh, our position would be that we certainly agree that in most cases where the language is parroted in both places, that could not, excuse me, that's not going to be a problem. Uh, but our position is the very nature of an explanatory purpose as described in 101.161 contemplates situations where a mere reiteration is going to be ins insufficient and the voters will need some sort of explanation to understand what's going on. And we would submit that this is such a case. I do want to talk uh, a little bit about the word assault weapons. Um, we think this term has a particular connotation. As I said before, we recognize that the term is defined in the ballot summary. But one of the risks we think that is present here is that when voters read the phrase capable of, they might have questions, you know, what does that mean? Is that broad? Is it narrow? And when they see the term assault weapons, we think that might that is likely to put the voters at ease uh, to the extent they have concerns that this prohibition might be too broad. And I think uh, my friends next to me have laid out uh, in their briefs why that term has a very particular connotation. Um, and then finally, just on aftermarket accessories, uh, we, we've explained this in our brief and, and in the expert declaration, but. I don't think it's intuitive or common knowledge to voters that you can go online and buy something called a magazine extender and that that will increase the capacity of most, if not all, semi-automatic shotguns. And I do think that shotguns might be the more easy uh, thing to focus on here. And the reason for that is I think everybody agrees or largely agrees that if magazine extenders are encompassed within the word capable of, then that means that basically all semi-automatic shotguns would be prohibited. There also seems to be agreement that if magazine extenders are not included within capable of, that very few semi-automatic shotguns would be included. And that's because most of them come with fixed magazines that hold less than 10 rounds. So this sort of, uh, you might say, arcane legal distinction regarding capable of and whether these very particular accessories are embraced by that causes a huge swing between very few of these shotguns being prohibited and almost all of them. Uh, and I can see can I'm I into rebuttal one, time. One yeah. final question. Do you have a position on whether this uh, rolls back or restricts uh, the existing state constitutional right to bear arms, or is it simply doing something that the legislature itself today would have the authority to do? We haven't taken a position on that, Your Honor, and I'd be hesitant to formulate. And one do you think here. that that's relevant in the sense that if if it if it if we believe that it's actually a restriction or a rollback of the existing right, is that something that you think 101.161 in our case law would require to be disclosed? I think that's an interesting question, Your Honor, because we we haven't taken a position on it at this point. I'd be a little hesitant to formulate a position now. Um, okay. Unless there's anything else, I'll, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. 
morning. My name is George Levesque on, be Levesque on behalf of the NRA. I'm here with Ashley Lucas, um, uh, my co-counsel, um, to address your, your last question, uh, Justice Muniz. We do believe um, there is an impairment of an existing constitutional right that the ballot summary does not adequately inform the voter about. Article 1, Section 8 grants the right to keep and bear arms. Um, this court in, Riz in Rensselaer specifically addressed that. The issue in that case was a statute. The statute criminalized the possession of automatic and semi-automatic weapons. The court, in holding that, upholding the statute, interpreted it and expressly held in that, in that opinion that the right to keep and bear arms related to semi-automatic rifles and handguns and shotguns was preserved. So in that case, because the ballot summary does not adequately inform the voter that they are losing that constitutional right, we believe it's insufficient in providing that expl explanation of the chief purpose. What's the, what's the best case to support that? Because I don't know that that's obvious from 101.161 itself, but it seems like there could be support in that from our case law, and I'm curious what you think would be the best authority for that point. I think the, the best authority that I would have is if you look at the case of, um, actually, I would right off the top cite the, the dissent in the Mangat case. Um, Justice Kennedy um, citing that, he, um, and quoting from there, it says, the text itself may, however, be inadequate to sufficiently inform the voters if the text does not disclose that it will affect the repeal of an existing constitutional provision. And I believe there are other cases that I'm just... We'll probably ask you, I mean, kind of going back to the one of the first and most basic cases where there was an existing constitutional provision that was essentially being rolled back by the amendment. And if you just say what the amendment is in the abstract, you wouldn't understand how it's affecting the status quo. Correct. And in another case, uh, I don't believe it was... Um, or Actually, it may have been the Askew case that dealt with the rollback of the... Um, ethics laws, um, that, that specific case, the court said it's sometimes the problem is not with what the amendment ballot summary says, but what it doesn't say. And talking about what this ballot summary actually says, um, we believe it also violates the uh, 101.161 uh, requirements because it uses political rhetoric. Um, the term it's itself, assault weapons, is something that has been recognized by judges. Uh, Justice Thomas, J Judge Kavanaugh at, at the time, uh, recognized that it was political rhetoric. Um, this court has said repeatedly those types of editorial comments do not belong in the ballot booth. They should be made outside. Here, And, and I, I agree that in the abstract it's a political and kind of rhetorical term, but how do you overcome the fact that the that the uh, title and the summary specifically say assault weapons as defined, and then they give the exact definition. I mean, is there, I don't see any limit in the Constitution that says that we can't have politically charged language in the Constitution itself. And as long as the summary and title make it clear to the voter that it's tied to that specific definition that itself would be in the text, I mean, how, it seems like we would be sort of backdooring a substantive limitation into what amendments can say under the guise of 101.161, when really 101.161, we can't interpret that in a way that would undermine the substantive right of the people to amend the Constitution, right? I believe because the statute, 101.161, does require 
that the ballot summary be clear and unambiguous. When you talk about these politically charged terms, by nature, they're ambiguous. The definition. It's not as if I could understand if the if there were the if the operative provision described these things and then without using the term assault weapon and then the summary said assault weapon for instance da 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 da. da. But I mean, in this case, it's baked into the. It would be baked into the text itself. I mean, how do you get beyond that? As attorneys and judges, we recognize that there's the term and there's the definition. The term does not control the definition, but the definition will control the term. I don't believe the average voter, when they're looking at that and they're seeing this inconsistent statement, assault weapon, which connotes some type of military-grade rifle, scopes, ported barrels, and those types of um, features, and then equating that with the definition, which would be so broad that it would cover 22 planking rifles that are used by Boy Scouts. and maybe even pellet guns and paintball guns because there's nothing in the definition that links the lethality that they talk about with any type of ammunition. So in, in that construct, those differences are so stark and they're playing on that that the average voter is not going to appreciate that and they're going to be confused by that. To echo one of the other um, arguments that was made by uh, the Attorney General, the ballot summary describes guns in terms of the exemption that it provides. Here, the actual amendment applies to people. And I think I would give one example, and I would focus on the family type event, where you've got a father and a daughter, they go out hunting. The father has a gun that's registered under this act. If they're walking through the woods and the father lets the daughter hold the gun, use the gun that day for hunting, at the end of that trip, under the ballot summary, what happens is everything's fine. Nobody broke any laws. But under the actual text of the amendment in that scenario, what happens is the daughter has committed a felony. And those two distinctions are stark, and they're not spelled out, and the average voter reading that is going to think that this gun that's exempt, they'll be able to share it with their family, they'll be able to pass it down uh, to family if they go hunting with friends, their friends can use the rifle uh, in Florida. That's not spelled out anywhere in the ballot summary that that is not the case. In fact, it's the exact opposite is implied. So for these reasons, we would ask that the court strike the ballot. Thank you. Good morning, and may it please the court. I'm Amber Nunnally from the law firm of Schutz & Bowen, here on behalf of the National Shooting Sports Foundation in opposition to the amendment. I'd like to use my brief time to address the narrow issue of the lack of clarity in the definition of assault weapon included in the ballot summary, specifically that the phrase capable of makes the summary unclear and ambiguous. An assault weapon is defined in the ballot summary as any semi-automatic rifle or shotgun capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition at once. This definition is ambiguous and does not make it clear to voters the full scope of firearms that would be banned under the amendment. Without a clear understanding of the full scope of the amendment, voters will be unable to cast an intelligent and informed ballot. 
That means that the ballot summary does not satisfy the clarity requirements in Section 101.161, and it should be not be placed on the ballot. The proponents of the amendment contends that under the ballot summary's definition, a semi-automatic rifle or shotgun would qualify as an assault weapon only if it is currently capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition at once. For example, on page 13 of the municipality's brief, they say that the proposed amendment does not include firearms that are capable of being modified or converted to hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. In an belated attempt to make the ballot summary clear, the sponsor argues that what they really meant the definition of assault weapon to be was any semi-automatic rifle or shotgun capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition at once without modification. But that distinction about modification is nowhere in the text of the ballot summary as it's currently drafted. And it cannot be understood simply by reading the phrase capable of, as the proponents argue. Instead, a reasonable voter could read the definition of assault weapon in the ballot summary to mean that the ban would apply to any semi-automatic rifle or shotgun that can hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition straight off the shelf, as well as any semi-automatic rifle or shotgun that can be made to hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition through the use of some accessory or other modification. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I'm struggling with the idea that a summary that copies the definition from the amendment can be can be not clear in the in the sense of 101.161 I mean are you hinging that on the idea of what an explanatory statement is well your honor is correct that the summary um, recites word for word the definition of assault weapon that's uh, included in the text of the amendment and this court has approved ballot summaries that include identical language from proposed amendments in the past, but in your recent opinion regarding the citizenship requirement amendment case, you stated that to comply with section 101.161, the ballot summary must both be accurate and informative, otherwise it's defective. So parroting the language from this amendment may satisfy the accuracy requirement, but if the amendment itself is unclear and ambiguous, reciting the language word for word would not make the ballot summary informative. So, so how are they, how is someone in advance supposed to, let's assume there is some ambiguity there, how are you supposed to resolve it since what a sponsor says that they think it means isn't, as we saw from the Amendment 4 case, that doesn't really matter at the end of the day unless right. it's just reflective of what anyone would understand the words to mean. And so what, I don't understand how, to the extent that this system, unless 101.161 is going to become a, a barrier, which I think would itself create constitutional problems, how are people, if, if it's not enough to just repeat a, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument that it is ambiguous, um, how are you supposed to get around that? I mean, how are you supposed, what, you know, if, if, if they had tried to lock in a particular meaning of an ambiguous term, then the argument would be that it means, you know, what, what, what the other possible interpretation is and the summary should have said that. So how are people supposed to deal with that? Um, I see that my time is ending, so may I answer? Please uh, do. Yes. We believe that uh, section 101.161 um, it includes a responsibility on the sponsor to explain in clear and unambiguous language the chief purpose of the amendment. If the sponsor has chosen to use ambiguous language in the amendment to achieve its goal, then they still have to satisfy the requirement of section 101.161. And to the extent this court's case law 
is that you can simply recite ambiguous language from the amendments in the summary to satisfy that uh, statute, then it's possible that it might need to be clarified. So um, I'm over my time now, and so we would ask that you not approve this ballot for the amendment. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is John Mills uh, with Boy Schiller and Flexner Council for the proponent. Also today for the proponent, uh, Corey Gray and Andrew Starling. Also, uh, uh, Mr. Kyle Casaza, representing the Brady Center, will be presenting, and Mr. Jamie Cole representing 12 cities. Uh, I will argue for 20 minutes. Each of them will argue for five. The focus of these questions and, well, the focus of the briefs and the issue is 101.161. And as I think Justice Lawson pointed out in an earlier argument, it says chief purpose. So the question is, what does chief purpose mean? Uh, this court in a couple of recent cases expressed quite particularly its role and I think importantly, its role is that it will not replace the potential wisdom or judgment of voters with its wisdom, and the court has been very consistent about that, and that recognizes, uh, well, the importance of voters in this established constitutional process, and that it will not remove a ballot title and summary unless it is clearly and convincingly wrong. So. It is the burden of the sponsor to present a clear question or a clear description of the chief purpose, which you have determined on a continuous basis, and at least in those two cases cited a, a, a sort of two-part approach. One is that if you affirmatively mislead, then you are not giving the voter a fair chance, and all this is about giving the voter a fair chance. And there, if you have affirmatively, if you have not included a major purpose or a material effect, you have misled, misled the voter. So it is the responsibility of the sponsor to not mislead and to include an explanation that is understandable to the voter. And, and, and that's it, no. Can I ask you a question? Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So on page 38 of your brief, you say that the proposed amendment doesn't abridge any existing Florida constitutional right. Um, if that premise is not, is not correct, and it does, in fact, abridge a constitutional right, which obviously the people in an, in an amendment can abridge an existing constitutional right if they want to, would that have to be disclosed? Would it be fatal not to disclose well, that? Well, you asked that question, and there are cases there are a series of cases that address the, the requirement of what a proponent must do. And it goes back to, there was a case, 1.35 property tax uh, uh, re reduction. And it's interesting in that uh, that case talked about the issue of what needs to be included in, uh, in ballot language. And I see that Justice Kennedy has been decided already once for his dissent. Uh, and uh, the dissent in that case really provides the basis for where we've gone. 
said, as mentioned, there is no requirement that the battle title and summary educate voters of the constitutional status quo. Uh, the latest statement uh, on this may be Florida Greyhound, and there are a couple of quotes in there. So I think it's probably clear that if you are repealing text, you need to say it. So if we were to say um, we repeal the right to have a handgun, that would repeal, be repealing text and saying that that's an existing right. Uh, if you are conflicting, I think it has to be clear from the text that you are conflicting, and I th this text is clear that it's changing. And as you said, you certainly have the right to change. But, but uh, Would it be material to an average voter to know whether they're just doing something through an amendment that could already be done legislatively under the existing Constitution versus actually rolling back a constitutional right? So is it material to tell a voter that this could be done legislatively as opposed to, and I think that's what you may have been alluding, well, alluding to. Or, or yeah, being explicit you, that we're, Well, that's, you know. uh, I, doesn't, 101 doesn't appear to require that. And the overall constitutional process allows um, the citizens to amend the Constitution. So I Yes, there are some constitutional amendments that would have to be done by Constitution, and a number of them could be done by statute. And medical marijuana was discussed. That could be done by statute. Uh, you didn't require to disclose that it could be done by statute. I think what, the, what Justice Kennedy was saying, and I think what the court may have adopted as rational logic, is if you're actually going to repeal text, then you need to tell people, uh, the, the, the Rensselaer case is pretty ambiguous. Well, but in Askew, they weren't repealing any text, right? They were just adding. But they, they were, were affecting you know, directly or repealing other well, provisions. Well, they were affecting direct. I mean, but that's, isn't, were, that, the, isn't that what we're talking affecting. about here? Well, I mean, well, here, I, understand way, that, I understand that it's arguable whether this case, whether it's dicta or whatever, but I mean, the Constitution means what it means, and this either is or is not rolling back an existing right. And I'm, and I'm struggling with whether we need to know what, that, what the scope of the right is before we can know whether this summary is okay. I mean, it's arguable. It could be that the answer is you can restrict or roll back an existing right and not have to disclose that, in which case it doesn't matter what the yeah, existing your right question, is. is there but, a but your question, is right? your position isn't, I mean, you're not saying categorically that you don't have to disclose that you're rolling back an existing right? If that's what, if that's, if that's what we you thought this was well, doing. First, you're disclosing by the text of what you're saying and what you're amending. You, you don't have to, if it would appear the logic that was mentioned in uh, property tax cap and in Greyhounds is that if you are repealing, a, if you are striking a section, then you should tell the people you're striking a section. But if you're modifying a constitutional right, there's no place in the constitutional text that says anything about long guns and uh, semi-automatic weapons that hold 10 rounds. Even, well, Rensselaer doesn't say anything about weapons that hold 10 rounds. It says that surely they, it, it is interpreting a, a statutory capacity to do that so I really, 
uh, think that if you clearly are repealing text, then that is what I think Greyhound is saying that we ought to do. But if you're modifying that, and if you're suggesting that you tell people when it could be done by statute, I, I don't think that's in there. But well, to the to the point of what uh, the text does and what the uh, the summary describes as to overbroad, which is a, a central point, or their argument is, this is overbroad. It covers too many. Uh, well, before before you address that, could I ask you to address uh, the, another argument that okay. they have concerning the next to last sentence of the ballot summary? The, the, the sentence that says exempts and requires registration of assault weapons lawfully possessed prior uh, to this provision's effective date. Now, I think we, our law is pretty clear that a summary should not contain a statement that is affirmatively misleading. Correct. Correct. What is your best argument that that statement is not affirmatively misleading? that the interpretation of that sentence has to, by text, by tradition, and by all interpretations, include the context of the title and summary. And the title and summary deal only with possession. That's all this is about. And possession is a human activity. The, uh, a, an assault weapon cannot possess itself. So it's, it's illogical. We don't expect voters to be illogical. You don't have to adopt an illogical statement. But it, but as it a, says it's an exemption. It is an exemption. But so it, says, the question it says it's an exemption of what? Exemption, exemption exempts and requires registration of assault weapons lawfully possessed prior to this provision's effective date. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just missing the point And here, the only a purpose, uh, the possession is the continual issue that it does not make sense to say that weapon lawfully possessed itself. Uh, everything that deals with But it refers to, a, a, but it just says a, a weapon that was lawfully possessed prior to the provision's effective date. It seems like the natural understanding of that Looking at it in this full context is that it is making reference to uh, assault weapons that were lawfully possessed prior to the provision's effective date, and it's exempting them uh, and requiring registration of them. But, but, the, but I don't know how anybody would get an idea from that that when the person who possessed it uh, trundles off this earth, then that all of a sudden that uh, weapon becomes illegal and is no longer exempt because it refers to um, an exemption of assault weapons. And so that's why I'm, I understand. So help me understand what, if there's anything else that would cast a different light on that. Because you would, if, it, if it means that, if, the way I, if I'm reading that correctly, then, you, then that is affirmatively misleading. Well, yes, if, if, but it, you cannot I understand. You, I understand you think my, my, the reading I have suggested of that is erroneous. 
Um, but if my, if it's not, then well, uh, the, the, summary, reason, the summary is affirmatively misleading. The reason that that argument is erroneous is nowhere in any interpretation of ballot title and summary do you read a sentence in isolation that well, would be I, completely nonsensical. But, uh, but, but why would it be that's nonsensical? Not nonsensical. That would not be a nonsense. I understand well, why that would be. Well, the nonsensical result is, you know, we, su we, su we suggested, and uh, if you accept this argument, then it nullifies the entire uh, rest of the provision. Because if I go out and buy 10,000 assault weapons prior to the effective date, and then I register them, or all, I can then sell them? I can, I, 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 I can buy 100,000 weapons. It, I mean, that, it says, but, it's, but it says what it says. I mean, I, I didn't write this. Well, it I says who did. But it, well, um, it says what it says in seventy-five words in context. I mean, that's how it should be interpreted in a common sense fashion, Your Honor. I, well, I let me, let me give saying. you an example. If somebody has um, um, a shotgun capable of holding more than ten rounds, and putting aside the argument about whether it can include modification or not. Let's just assume that somebody uh, uh, re registers that weapon, okay? And so if they register that weapon, they're fine under the summary, right? So they pass away, they die. Somebody inherits that weapon. Is that weapon then illegal or not? It's under, under the text it, 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 of, it is illegal, and they need to turn it in. Under the text of the amendment, Same, it's For illegal. example, if you had illegal drugs. Is that right? Under the text of the amendment, it's illegal. Yes. Those, that is a contrary reading, I would submit, to what the summary says. Why is that not the case? Because well, really under the summary, under the summary, Justice Paulson, that you, uh, when you read the title and summary, you read them together, and that that sentence is shouldn't be read in isolation. How does the summary put me on notice that the registration of what I think under the summary is of an appropriate registration of that weapon is suddenly illegal upon my passing? Where is there notice of that? Well, you are in the only exemption relates to a human who is in possession. So you are in the whole the whole ballot title summary and provision deals with illegal possession. And only a human, was essentially a life in being, who was able to register. Right, but it's, it's, it says it prohibits the possession of defined assault weapons and then says that that, that that definition excludes assault weapons that are lawfully owned at the time of passage. So that, that the you read that all together and it I mean, I don't see how you view it any other way. I mean, it's talking about possession, but it's talking about what you can possess. And it says you can possess a registered firearm that was possessed and meets the de otherwise meets the definition on the date of passage. You can if you registered and if you lawfully possessed and you're, you're a person. Let me move you to a different part of this, which is uh, aside from the affirmative misleading, but the statement of the chief purpose. Yes. Um, and that is the argument about whether this, what this capable of holding means, right? 
So as I read your briefs and understand your argument is, as they argue that it seems to, to require that we insert the words without modification in there. In other words, if someone has, say, a 12-gauge automatic shotgun typically used for hunting, it holds three shells when you buy it, right? Then what they say is that there's available off the shelf, readily available, you don't have to take it to a gunsmith or something, this can be easily modified to hold 10 or more and thereby, therefore, be illegal under this particular provision. Well, and specifically in response to that, and I also think Justice Munoz was, uh, was asking that issue of capable of the, the experts don't matter. <laughs> you, can, you can interpret capable of. And capable of, by all dictionary definitions, and it means presently uh, enabled or presently able to do something. So if you know, I have a pump shotgun, well, pump shotgun will never qualify because it's not semi-automatic. But if you had a semi-automatic weapon that you could add a clip to, that would qualify. If you're describing a situation where, well, you could easily modify, that doesn't work because it's the weapon itself has to be currently capable of firing more than 10 rounds. So you're reading but if you're, Well, capable of... Capable it, of meaning that it uh, is without modification in some way. Well, guess what? In, in the dictionary definition we're looking at and the argument we make, capable of is in present sense. You know, if I have a car that uh, can go 120 miles an hour, I have to modify it for it to go 300 miles an hour. So it's you have to modify it a lot. Have to modify it a lot, uh, but if, if you the, not off the shelf, <laughs> if it's off the shelf, if it is off the shelf and capable of, then it qualifies. So what it seems like the chief purpose to me when you put that argument and the uh, registration of assault weapons, it seems to me that the chief purpose of this amendment is to eliminate long guns within a generation in the state of Florida. Is that well, not right? That's not the well, that's not the effect by anyone's definition. Well, because there there are three lethality conditions, Your Honor. So, it is long gun, it is semi-automatic, and capable of holding ten round more than ten rounds. So there are a lot of long guns that are not semi-automatic. There are a lot of shotguns that are not semi-automatic. And there are a lot that are not capable of holding 10 rounds, and the industry, in fact, has built in response to other policies. But there's not a lot that's not capable of being modified to do this. Well, modified is different. By the way, you well, can, the, you can modify the, it to issue, comply, it? or you could modify it to not comply. <laughs> but, if it, it, but if the weapon you, owe, you own at the moment is not capable of, then it's not covered. I mean, it is not, a, but if you, once you modify it, it is. I've learned, so, it's been brought to my attention, you and I can think what language means, other people may not agree. Well, well, and, and it, it, you, would, you admit that if it has a clip on it, a detachable uh, magazine, and uh, that, that could, 
the, the kind of change you, that would fall within the scope of this, if you take it does that not off, mean taking it out and putting it in. Because and put, the, a, put a, a larger capacity magazine on there, then that, that, that's that, not that, a that is still capable of. of that's of, correct. Of, okay. But I mean, in big picture, though, I mean, we're talking about 101.161. And if we go down the path of requiring people to interpret arguably ambiguous terms, then in a ballot summary, then there's no, I, mean, I don't understand, I don't know how anyone in, in advance could write a ballot summary and have any kind of objective kind of expectation as to what we were going to do with it. I see my time is up. You may answer that, though. If, if you want to, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I always want to answer. So, so what you're, you're saying is they're always, well, there are always going to be terms in any I think proposal. that was a friendly question. I know it was. <laughs> there are always going to be terms uh, that will need further definition. And as long as it's understandable and understandable to the voter of what it's doing, then that should be compliant, that you're, you, you, you explain the chief purpose and you explain what it does. Uh, and there may be later interpretations, as there have been in many cases before you that have been passed by initiative. There may be further legislation, as there have been many uh, initiatives that have been passed and further interpreted. So yes, you should be able to describe what it does, and that's a fair question for a common sense voter. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, Kyle Kazaza from Proskauer Rose. With my colleagues Christina Kroll and Nat Miller, I represent proponents Brady and Timonoff. I'd like to address the opponent's argument that the use of the term assault weapons in this title and summary constitutes improper political rhetoric. Going back to the standards for 101.161, this court considers whether the title and summary fairly inform the voters of the amendment's chief purpose and whether that title and summary are misleading. As part of that second question, this court has criticized the use of misleading political rhetoric. That words might elicit an emotional response from some voters is not enough to keep a title and summary off the ballot. Surely some Florida voters had emotional responses to prior proposed amendments that would protect marriage and prohibit state spending for experimentation that involves the destruction of a live human embryo. Where otherwise, such a rule would in fact create an unfair limitation on what citizens can propose for Florida's constitution, given that particularly with sensitive topics, it's often difficult to avoid using language that might invite an emotional response from at least some voters. Well, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I mean, and this is this might be enough, but your only refuge here is the fact that you wrote assault weapon that term into the proposed constitutional text. I mean, you're not suggesting that in the absence of that being in the proposal itself that you could use that term in a summary. It would depend on the context, but here I mean, you're correct that that it's defined, and importantly, as in Florida marriage protection, the definition is consistent with the dictionary definition of assault weapon. This isn't an instance where, for example, we're defining up to mean down within the text of the summary in the proposed amendment. Well, does the dictionary definition of assault weapon cover 
like a, a, a 22? Uh, the dictionary definitions we see. I mean, a semi automatic uh, 22. So, for example, uh, the Merriam Webster definition uh, defines assault weapon to mean any of various automatic or semi automatic firearms. It's not specific to caliber. Uh, importantly, here also, uh, the definition that we're using. Are, are there within, other dictionary definitions that have, uh, that emphasize other things? Uh, there are other definitions that. Uh, reference, for example, uh, opponents made reference to other bans that refer to cosmetic features of the weapon. Other state uh, laws have banned guns, for example, that uh, resemble the style of a particular model of semi-automatic weapon. We would submit that this proposed definition of assault weapon within the summary is more useful to the voter by employing objective criteria. The voter can discern from the text of the summary a weapon is banned if it is semi-automatic, if it is a rifle or shotgun, and if it's capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition. So do you accept the idea that, you know, you're saying that this term itself isn't political rhetoric, but I mean, do you buy into the idea that uh, you can't write any, if, if a term crosses the line into being too hot or too rhetorical, that it actually couldn't be use in the Constitution and therefore not in a ballot summary? Uh, I, I don't. I, I think one could imagine topics of proposed initiatives where it might be impossible to avoid using terminology that could be so heated and spark intense emotional reactions on, on both sides of a particular initiative that it, it just might be impossible to avoid language in some situations. But can people define terms however they want? I mean, could you have said this bans killing machines defined as, and then use this exact same definition, and then you put that in a ballot summary, would that be okay? No, because uh, that would be misleading. Uh, at some point, by employing a purely subjective evaluation, uh, the killing machine, you're no longer uh, accurately representing what the, what the legal effect of the proposed amendment does. Uh, it gets into case law such as uh, Evans v. Firestone with unnecessary costs or Mangot with mandates that don't work. By imposing a subjective uh, value judgment in the text of the summary, the summary misled voters as to the legal effect of the amendment. So you actually accept the premise of the other side that we have to independently, it's not enough that it's just using the same term that's in the proposed amendment that we actually do have to evaluate whether it crosses some line of impermissible rhetoric? I think the cases are clear that, that not, not every question as to whether something might fall within a term used between both a summary and amendment need to be identifiable uh, at the stage of evaluating whether or not it complies with 101.161 that there may be cases down the road raising the issue of what capable of can mean or what possession can mean shouldn't be fatal to the title and summary here. All right. And I see I have uh, just a little bit of time remaining. No, uh, you, you actually, <laughs> you have used a little extra time. Thank you, Your Honor. That's what the red means, but, uh, the red light. But. May it please the court. My name is Jamie Cohen. I'm honored to be here on behalf of 13 municipalities from throughout the state of Florida. 
I would like to use my limited time to try to convince you that the last sentence in the ballot summary is not misleading and that the reasonable voter using common sense will read that the way consistent with the text. Which you mean is, the next to last sentence? Yes, the next to last okay. sentence, the one that exempts and requires registration. So I'd like to, to start by saying that you have to look at it in context. And my first argument would be you need to look at it in context as it's used in the sentence. The NRA, in proposing this argument on page 16 of their brief, this is what they say. This is a quote from their brief. Specifically, the ballot summary states categorically that the amendment, quote, exempts dot, 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 assault weapons lawfully possessed before the amendment's effective date. And the reason I emphasize that is because of the dot, dot, dot. They take out the dot, dot, dot because when you look at it, exempts assault weapons lawfully possessed before the effective date, it does seem to support their argument. It makes it sound like the weapon itself is exempt. However, if you read it the other way and put the dot, dot, dot on the exempt and read it dot, 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 requires registration of assault weapons lawfully possessed prior to the provision's effective date, you would come to the opposite conclusion. Because obviously, the only person that could register an assault weapon lawfully possessed prior to the provision's effective date would be the person who lawfully possesses it. Now, when you put them together... Well, I, I'm, I'm not following this. Because, I mean, I, let's put aside all the dot, dot, dots, okay? We read the whole thing. Um, I don't understand what is in here that would not lead someone to believe that it's exempting the assault weapons and require, that were lawfully possessed prior to the provision's effective date and requiring their registration. And I would understand from that an ongoing obligation for those exempted assault weapons to be registered. Well, the one of, what, why would I misunderstand that? Because the exemption and the registration requirement go hand in hand. They're not, it's not an exemption and a registration requirement. They're hand in hand. So when you put those... Exempts and requires registration. Right, they're together. Exactly. So since that's a combined thing, and then the, the voter would say, all right, well, who, if they're asked to require registration, how do we register? Who registers? And the answer is given right in that sentence, the person who lawfully possessed. And to read it any other way is basically to create a perpetual superimmunity for the weapon. Here's the problem I have with your argument. The, the language that's here, I, I really can't, it, it, given the constraints of the, of, the, uh, of the 75 words and all that, if there were a true grandfather provision in here, which says that weapons that were possessed prior aren't going to be covered uh, by this uh, prohibition, they aren't going to be subject to confiscation down the road. I can't really think of a much uh, more direct way of stating such a, a real grandfather provision than is right here. Well, I, I I mean, so that's why, I mean, it just seems like that's what it's talking about. But, it, but we know that that's not what you're doing, right? Well, first of all, the word grandfather doesn't appear anywhere. I understand that, but that's, 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 that's a, a, that's a yes. uh, colloquial expression. Okay. The, the idea that this perpetually exempts also does not appear in that language. Based on that reading, that interpretation, that the thought is the voter is going to read this and say, all right, well, that means... If a, law, if a weapon is lawfully possessed on the effective date and, and registered by that person, 
That wait, 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 becomes... where, where is that person in the ballot summary? Well, it says exempt and requires registration of assault weapons. It then says lawfully possessed. When you're registering something, it can't register itself. And it but can't, the lawfully possessed is, is connected with the prior to the provisions date. It's a timing. Yes, but it, to require registration, to register Obviously, something. the person that has it at the time that this comes into effect is the one that has to register it. I mean, that's... Exactly. That, right. That's obvious. So it can't okay. register itself. It has, that's right. the person who has to right. register it. Now, to read it the other way would mean once it's registered, that weapon has a perpetual super immunity. So if someone steals it, but I mean they could possess it. If someone finds it, they could possess it. If they bought... That is not a logical interpretation of that, that language, that it creates this it, perpetual well, immunity. Well, it doesn't say weapon. temporarily exempts. I mean... <laughs> I, well, it... it, it I mean, it, it, typically, if, a word, if it says exempts, it means exempts. Uh, right. it, and, it, and without lim limitation. And, Your Honor, if it just said exempts, I, I think the argument would be very strong. It doesn't just say exempts, because it says exempts and requires registration, which then the voter would say, all right, how does the registration pro process works? And they'd have to look at the text of the amendment, which is, by the way, that section is 153 words. We only have 75, okay. and we couldn't put all that in there. There's got to be some burden on the, tax, on the voter to go and look at the actual language. If, if the language of the ballot summary were the language of the text of the constitutional provision, it would create a grandfather provision that would allow anyone to lawfully possess a weapon that was, that was registered, right? It would also be 228 words. So, no, but no, no, I'm saying, but if, if the, the sentence that was in the ballot summary were in the text, it would create a true grandfather provision that that weapon could continue to be owned, it possessed, it could be passed down. Instead, the, the text says it exempts persons instead of exempts weapons. So the text does something completely different than the ballot summary. I don't see how that's not... But if that language was in the text, that would be ambiguous, and it would have I, to be interpreted I, by a court afterwards, but an, an ambiguity in the text is not. Now, beyond that, you also have to Council, read it. We in, have run you way over, but if you, you, I'll give you another 30 seconds oh, to sum you. up. It, you also need to read that sentence in, con, in conjunction with the entire summary, which is prohibiting possession. It is an exemption from a prohibition on possession, which goes to a person. Well, no, but the first sentence of the summary talks about possession of what, not who. And the sentence that we're all that you've been keep being being asked about is it also relates to possession of what, you know. And so I don't think the context helps you. Well, when it says exempts, even if you don't look at the required registration, exempts exempts from what? It's re, it is exemption from a prohibition on a person possessing. So it still has to relate to a person at some point. And I do. Would, in closing, I would just like to mention that the court. It needs to be clearly and conclusively defective. This, just because there's some little, some issues, does not make it clearly and conclusively defective. Thank you. I want to go back to the, the exemption uh, very quickly and just address one very specific point, which is uh, one of my colleagues mentioned uh, 
what he thought would be an absurd result, which is this sort of loophole where a voter could go buy a bunch of these weapons. And I think there are two very important points that are slightly subtle about that that show that voters are not going to assume that this is an absurd result. So one is that 30-day loophole is baked in. It's there either way. This is something that the sponsors have created. So regardless of the extent of that exemption, somebody can run out in that 30-day window and buy thousands of these weapons. So to the extent that's an absurd result, that strikes me as an absurd result in either case. But I think more importantly, the reason that result exists is because of this 30-day window. Now, the really important point is their, their absurd results argument hinges on the idea that the voters will understand that there's this 30-day gap that creates an absurd result. That 30-day language is not in the ballot summary. The voters are told that they have to possess it prior to the effective date, but the voters are not on notice that there's 30 days between when it's passed and when that effective date is. So the entire premise of that absurd results argument imputes to the voter knowledge of this 30-day window that the voters are not told about. Um, and then just very quickly, I'd like to respond to Justice Muniz's concern about ambiguity. Our position is that the text is not ambiguous, and that's particularly based on the context. Uh, I have very limited time, but there are just three words I want to emphasize. So when it says uh, in a fixed or detachable magazine or any other ammunition feeding device, we think the key words are the word in, the words a, the indefinite article, uh, and any other. So the word in shows that the focus is not on what the gun can hold sort of by itself. It's the focus is on in a fixed or detachable magazine. So the question is whether the gun can in some way interact with such a magazine. And then the word A and any other express that it's not just the standard magazine or the magazine being used. It's whether there's some magazine out there in existence or some other device that will work with the firearm and hold but, more But that language is in the ballot summary. The voters are told exactly what that language is. So if it's unambiguous, as you argue it is, then, then they're told unambiguously what the substance of the proposal does in that regard, correct? That, that's right, Your Honor. Okay. Our, our argument hinges on the idea that this is un unambiguous in the legal sense, but that voters will understand it. And, and I can see I'm out of time. Uh, we ask that the court uh, find that the ballot summary is deficient. Thank you. Briefly, I'd like to respond very quickly. <clears throat> to the political rhetoric arg argument. It's not that the language evokes an emotional response. It's that the language misleads the voters in the visions that it draws up. A lot of voters may be perfectly comfortable with military-grade weapons. Justice Muniz. No, like but I mean, question. if it says assault weapon defined as, then it is what it is. I, I don't understand that argument. And it, there, there's a difference between what a legislature can do in its lawmaking and what the citizens can do. The, the, the courts have drawn that distinction. Here, what is happening is, and, and to, to give you the so specific- So tell me though, what's the source of that? I understand, so what's this, so you're basically telling us that there has to, either, either that you can't write certain types of words into the Constitution, or that if you can, you can't use them in the ballot summary. And I don't understand what the source of that kind of a prohibition would be. What would be what's your authority for saying that? Well, the authority, I, I believe, draws directly from 101.161. But the 101.161 cannot limit. 101.61 is just a means to an end of presenting things to the people. It can't be used as a backdoor way of limiting what people can put in the Constitution. Do you agree with that? I do. Okay. However, 
to the extent the prior decisions of this court, when, when you look at Save Our Everglades, that was one of those where the court said that is impermissible. The court struck it from the ballot. A few years later, the legislature enacted the Save Our Everglades Trust Fund. There's a difference between the discretion that is given to the legislature and the province of a citizen's petition where they are restricted to neutral terms. Here, they're not using neutral terms. They're using terms like assault weapons that indisputably connote other things, ambiguous things. They, re they, they reference several states that have varying definitions. They reference multiple dictionaries, all of them doing a something a little different. But in the voters' mind, they're left to guess, okay, which one is it? There's Actually, they're not because the definition is written into the ballot summary. It, well, it, it is, but it conflicts with what that image of an assault weapon is. So we're so now in our cases, we're supposed to not only look at the words on the ballot that are written in the ballot summary, but we're supposed to guess at what a voter would think that the words mean, notwithstanding what's written on the page, and invalidate things that are inconsistent with what we think a voter would think these words mean in their mind that's different from what's on the page? I think you could use reasonable judgment in making those calls, um, and I don't think this is a close call. To address one of the points that um, the, the sponsor made, the constitutional right, this court in Rinsler found it to be existing there in the Constitution to maintain semi-automatic weapons for personal protection, for hunting, and for protection of property. I would cite the court to the advisory opinion related to the right of citizens to choose health care providers. In that, they said it is imperative that an initial petitioner identify the provisions of the Constitution substantially affected. Here, what they are doing is they are significantly rolling back a right, and they are obligated to let the voters know that this is something that they are taking away from them. And finally, going to the, the idea that the ballot summary um, should be read in the whole text, addressing that last exemption. If you look at the immediately preceding sentence, it says exempts military and law enforcement personnel and their official duties. They know how to exempt people. Here, they're just exempting the gun. Of course, a gun has to be possessed by somebody, but they're exempting the gun. And it is not an unreasonable thing to think that they're going to grandfather a static class and take incremental approaches to how they are going to start implementing their gun control agenda. Lots of citizen petitions, they don't go for the whole apple, they just take a little bite. This is certainly a reasonable reading of this approach. And for those reasons, we would request the court strike the amendment from the ballot. Thank you. All right, well, we thank you all for your arguments. And that concludes this session of court. Court is now adjourned.